University Press podcast, and I'm Jessica Hollihan. We have an unusual format for our episode today. I'm really delighted to be joined by three guests, and after I introduce them and explain what connects them to one another, I'm going to turn the conversation over to them. Eileen Hogan, who is here in the studio today, is a contemporary British painter and book artist whose career spans several very productive decades. In recent years, her work has gravitated, at least in part, toward two dominant themes, gardens and portraiture. These themes are explored in depth in a remarkable exhibition titled Eileen Hogan Personal Geographies that has been on view this summer at the Yale Center for British Art here in New Haven. The exhibition was curated by the Yale Center for British Art's chief curator of rare books and manuscripts, Elizabeth Fairman, who's my second guest. And my third guest is the oral historian, Kathy Courtney, whose work forms a part of the impressive repository of oral histories encompassed by National Life Stories, which is an oral history charity based at the British Library. Kathy is the project director for the long-running and ongoing Artists' Lives Project. Eileen has been present at a number of the recordings that Kathy has conducted, and she's taken these opportunities to draw the subject as the interview progresses over numerous distinct sessions, sometimes over the course of years, and these sketches subsequently inform painted portraits. I'd like to read a short passage from Eileen Hogan Personal Geography's The Book, which accompanies the exhibition. This passage, in Eileen's own words, characterizes this process. I listen as I draw and allow the sitter's story to enhance my understanding of the person. I'm sure this indirect way of coming to know them feeds into the images I make. I watch each person as they speak about the intimate aspects of their lives, and I observe the effect that this has on their faces and gestures. I draw and paint them while they more or less forget I'm at work. Eileen, Elizabeth, and Kathy have all known one another for many years, and Kathy has generously agreed to offer some questions for Eileen and Elizabeth to answer. Thank you and welcome to all three of you. Glad to be here. Uh, thank you very much, Jessica. Um, I'm going to turn to Eileen first. Um, you've had many exhibitions, both in commercial galleries and in museums, but I think this exhibition has been an especially rich experience and I wondered if you could say why. Uh, thank you Kathy and Jessica. Um, I think this exhibition has been the um, most wonderful experience of my professional life and I think it will remain so and for all sorts of reasons. Um, Elizabeth and I have been planning it for nearly planning the exhibition and the book for nearly three years and um, during that time, uh, because of the, I think, the, well, two reasons, really. One is that um, the other exhibitions I've had in museums, um, the Imperial War Museum in London, was uh, to do with um, a commission from the Imperial War Museum to paint women at work in the Royal Navy over two years. And so what actually went into the exhibition was prescribed. The other museum show recently was uh, at the 
um, London's Garden Museum, which was a result of the residency. Um, so with this exhibition, the uh, content hasn't been prescribed in, a way, in, in any way. And my work and career has many different strands. I'm a painter, a printmaker, um, a book artist. I've been involved in education. I've had commissions. Um, so I don't fit neatly into one compartment. So it's, I think it's quite hard to tell the story of my work. And working with Elizabeth, who's uh, not only a very imaginative and experienced curator, but also knows the, um, the, the centre, the space that Louis Kahn built in really, really well. So she somehow managed rather magically, in my view, to weave the narrative of my, my work within the space of the centre. And also, for me, really, because I've had to look very hard at my practice and interrogate myself in a way that I never really have before, um, I've learned so much about my work that I didn't really know. I've had to articulate it and um, been challenged by Elizabeth quite a lot. But, the, I mean, it's been the most you know, remarkable um, working experience. And when I walk into the exhibition now, I really, um, you know, can't, can't quite believe it. And the other aspect is that the book really reflects the whole narrative of the exhibition. So I think it's, it's um, pretty amazing. <laughs> and Elizabeth, you've known Eileen's work for quite a long time. I wondered if you could say how the idea of the exhibition came about and what you've learned through... It's been an extraordinary collaboration, really, what, how you've experienced it compared to other exhibitions. Well, um, I think we started thinking seriously about a monographic show during an afternoon we spent at Little Sparta, that wonderful garden um, designed by Ian Hamilton Finley outside of Edinburgh on the Pentland Hills, where um, Eileen was sitting um, on top of a hill painting. Um, Kathy, you were down the hill reading in the heather, um, and I got a chance to wander around the garden and looking at that um, incredible place. And I'd been thinking um, about an exhibition that I did uh, a year later um, of Greenleaf, Bird, and Flower, where Eileen's work focused on Little Sparta featured. And I think that afternoon we started thinking about, okay, well, Greenleaf is pretty well sorted, but how do we think more? Um, do we have an opportunity to think about Eileen's work in more depth um, a few years down the road? And fortunately, in 2019, we were able to do that. So what did you learn from working with Eileen? Well, um, working with Eileen has been the best experience of my life. I've been at the center for, I think it's now 37 years, I've worked with a number of contemporary artists, and I've loved all of them. Um, but there's been something very special, I think, about working with Eileen because I've known her for so long, and I've seen her work develop. Um, I didn't know her garden paintings until I saw them at the Garden Museum, which was a very special project that she was involved with um, in 2016 when she was the artist in residence there, this wonderful place that was being renovated. So she didn't actually have a place to sit in the building, um, but it asked uh, quite a number of artists, um, friends, poets, other people that she knew to nominate their favorite garden in London. So just to see how she worked from... That first nomination, thinking about London, thinking about um, how she would go around to each place with her sketchbook, thinking about 
how she might develop some of those sketches into different paintings, different scales. Um, that, I think, was an immense privilege and quite different from how one usually sees a project develop. Usually you might see the finished works all available at once. And what I think Eileen and I were able to do taking so long over this project was to really think and explore how we might present to our visitors and also to readers of the book um, to be able to demonstrate how an artist um, works through these different processes from the very first time she might think of something. Um, and I think that's what I've learned. Um, and it's not a retrospective, but it manages to cover a, a very large span of time. I wondered if you could talk about how you decided to structure the exhibition, and obviously that has a repercussion on how the book is structured. Well, I think I might ask Eileen to talk a little bit about this wonderful model box that we had, which really changed and was able to influence the way we thought about the exhibition. But I think it started from knowing we had five bays, that is 20 by 20, by 20 feet gallery spaces within the center. And I'm used to using um, those spaces and knowing that you had to have a certain narrative. Um, but I think at first we thought it would be a chronological um, but realized we had um, just a certain number of inches we had to work within. Um, but Eileen, do you want to talk about how we thought about the model box and how that helped us think through? Yes. Um, I mean, I'm a, a professor at the University of Arts London, and I work across um, fine arts and theatre, actually. So I asked one of, my, one of the theatre students to make a white model box, which they're very used to doing for um, their productions, um, and Elizabeth provided all the measurements, and I cut up lots of little small paintings that we could move around, rather like a doll's house. And it was hugely helpful for me because I didn't know the space um, very well. Uh, Elizabeth obviously um, did. And um, I think the first, it seemed very obvious to work um, chronologically. And I know Elizabeth felt that it would have been nicer to have more space, but actually... I've come to really um, value having such a concentrated space because it made us think really hard about what really mattered in terms of what we included. And um, we came to the conclusion that, um, I think it was actually Duncan Robinson's um, suggestion, who's a previous director of the centre, um, that we should, on the first wall that you see, we should make as much impact as possible as you walk into the exhibition. And that was a recent work um, from my residency, or rather my non-residency, at the Garden Museum. And from then on, um, uh, enclosed gardens are very important to me, enclosed green spaces. And Little Sparta was one of those. And another exhibition, which I called Four Squares, which is about enclosed garden spaces in London. So we moved on uh, to more enclosed spaces. And then because I painted in Hamilton Finlay at Little Sparta, that gradually led into a section on portraits. And then we finished on the Garden Museum project again so that people walked out um, after having seen a film um, made about that particular project. And um, can you just explain how you began painting in Hamilton Finlay? Well, Cathy, <laughs> I went there with you uh, because you were doing a recording of Ian, a life story recording um, for the British Library. And I'd never been to the garden before, but you said uh, you thought I might like it. So um, 
we went. Um, I drove there, which in itself was quite an experience because it's like a pilgrimage. Um, it's only um, half an hour away from Edinburgh. Um, and um, But it's up a... It's in a very kind of bleak bit of Scotland, surrounded by the Pentland Hills. And Ian and his wife, Sue, um, well, they were no longer together that when I met him. Um, they carved out this garden out of the Pentland Hills. And you go up a hugely kind of rocky little road um, with fields on either side with bulls and cows and everything. You had no idea you were going to get anywhere. You were there already, so I was on my own at that point. It was absolutely kind of typical Scottish weather, pouring with rain, very, very dark. Um, and Ian himself has got, is very notorious as being quite a difficult character. He has huge rows within the art world. And um, correct me if I've got this wrong, but Little Sparta is called... Little Sparta, in opposition to Athens, which is Athens, which is in opposi- opposition to Edinburgh, which is Athens of the north, um, because of a great row that Ian had had with the council, um, Scottish council in Edinburgh. So I felt apprehensive in a way, both because of the journey, but also because of meeting Ian. And um, Kathy and Ian were, um, Kathy was recording Ian at the back of his cottage in a little conservatory. And I couldn't really walk around the garden because the weather was too bad. So I sat under some trees, sort of dripping, looking into the conservatory, drawing, and watching um, Ian talking about his life. And that was the first time I'd really experienced oral history in a way. Um, I mean, I knew about it, but I never... I, I somehow saw it, and, I, and, and I, I started to draw him. And then, I suppose, after about two hours... Uh, you took a break, he came out, um, and uh, the weather changed fundamentally and sun shone, and we walked around the garden together. And the garden is a series of gardens, rather like rooms, which are all very different. And it's a garden of poetry, philosophy, music, sound, and it hugely resonated with me. A combination of words, um, classical mythology... French Revolution. Um, so it was a, an enormous privilege to see it, um, to see it within, who I have to say was entirely charming um, and was charming every time I met him ever afterwards. And that was in 1997. And I went on visiting Little Sparta, working there, painting the garden, eventually painting him until a few years after he died. So I worked there till between 1997 and 2013. And you've subsequently done a number of portraits uh, while the recording's gone on. And one of the points that's never made anywhere else and that I'm determined to make is it means you're actually quite close to the sitter in a way I think is different from in a situation either in their home or in the studio where you are doing a formal sitting. But what else makes a difference by having uh, an oral history going on? Well, I'm actually, although I'm in the room and have a relationship with the oral historian and the sitter, um, I'm not at the heart of the relationship. But it, the, the, the conversation is going on between the other two people. I have no control over where the person sits or what they wear. So I'm very much a kind of fly on the wall, really, watching. And... Um, 
it's made it's made me become very interested in the relationship between portraiture and biography, because watching somebody while they talk about their lives is a very moving experience. I find, and what interests me about oral history is not just what's said, but what actually isn't said as well, and the nuance of delivery. Um, and I think to seeing somebody kind of settle into themselves is very intriguing because um, I think often, well, I've noticed with, my, if, with myself and photographs, people can take photographs of me, and I think, well, that couldn't, couldn't possibly be me. It doesn't look like me at all. And so I think sometimes we don't look like ourselves. And so I, I think trying to find out what, what somebody is really like is um, very intriguing. And some of these portraits went over a period of years. So um, I was able to watch quite subtle changes and sometimes quite big changes. Um, and I think that's um, what really fascinates me. And Elizabeth, there's um, some portraits of Second World War veterans, which I think also chime in with others of your interests and research. I wondered if you could talk about them. Well, I was very interested um, to see the portrait of D-Day veteran um, Anthony Leake um, that the Prince of Wales had commissioned Eileen Hogan to do while he was hoping to um, capture the last of the veterans of, of D-Day before they all passed on. Um, so I've been very interested in, in First World War, particularly in my own research and my exhibitions, but to have a veteran's portrait while we are commemorating the 75th anniversary of D-Day, seemed just wonderful. Um, another veteran in the exhibition that Eileen was commissioned by the Prince of Wales to paint was Alistair Urquhart, who was um, a veteran of um, Japanese prisoner of war camp experience. He actually worked on the bridge over the River Kwai. Um, and I think both of those veterans' portraits, very sympathetically painted by Eileen, um, could also be considered... Um, alongside her incredible project called Poetry Box, which we acquired um, back in 2003, um, which is a project that I'd like Eileen probably to explain more clearly than I can. Um, but we picked um, two poems from the Poetry Box. One a poem that I selected, actually, um, from Edmund Blunden, a First World War poet, and another poem that someone else selected, um, Philip Whitehead, um, a poem by Craig Rain about the Second World War. So in the exhibition and in the book, we try to make those connections from the portraiture to poetry, which reflects upon Eileen's interest, I think, in, in Finley. But maybe you'd like to talk a little bit more about the poetry box, which is so extraordinary. Uh, yes, it was a commission um, from I, for, for me and for a, num a number of other artists to produce a new piece of work in response to something in the Japanese collection of the museum. And I chose an 18th century card game called Uta Karuta, um, which was, um, there were 200 cards in the box. 100 had the first line of a poem on one side and the portrait of the poet on the other. And the second 100 cards had the last line of the poem and an image relating to the poem on the reverse side and the game was actually to match the first and last lines and I wanted to recreate this but actually um, we don't have a canon of poetry in the West as they do 
did in Japan and still do to some degree. Um, so uh, I couldn't actually recreate that. And at first I thought I'd choose all the poems myself. And then I got to number seven and <laughs> thought, I can't do this. Um, so I invited 100 people to choose a poem that they cared about, um, to write a line about why they chose it, and also um, a line about a, a, a verbal self-portrait. And even the people who, um, I think I invited 109 people and 108 people sent me poems. And even the people said, I don't read poetry, um, came up with something that mattered to something to them, you know, perhaps something read at a funeral or a wedding. Um, so it was a wonderful snapshot of what people cared about and what they were reading at a particular moment. And I followed the format of portrait on the back, back of the um, first line and image relating to the poem on the back of the um, last line. Do you want to say anything quickly about um, going to do the painting of Cray Grain? Oh, me, yes, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell the story, but it's been funnier if I Do you remember it. the story? You tell it then. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's why I need to have my break. break. No. You tell it. No. <laughs> Um, Craig Rain, a wonderful poet, and this absolutely extraordinary, moving um, poem. And, and a lot of the poets were dead, um, but the, po the live poets I, I, I managed to get um, sit-ins with mostly. And um, Craig um, invited me to come to Oxford uh, to his house um, for the sit-in. And I, I arrived there on time and knocked on the door and knocked on the door, no reply, no reply. And I thought, he's forgotten. Anyway, I kept on knocking and eventually this head peered round the door and he was wearing a, a very brightly coloured bathrobe and he had forgotten, actually, um, and he'd been in the stripes, shower. Right? Stripes, stripes, yes. Yeah. And um, so he was very apologetic and um, uh, disappeared and sort of dried off and changed and came back. And we had a perfectly good um, sit-in. But I think it's that first impression, whether it's a person or a landscape, is always really... Um, somehow important to me and it's like the kind of beginner's view somewhere it's the first time you see something and so the impression of him peering around the door in his bathrobe um, was really kind of um, very powerful so I, w I went back to London and um, I found the same bathrobe <laughs> in our, one of our department stores John Lewis and I actually took a, drew it and took a photograph and the assistant there very kindly modelled it for me and then I, I, I put that together with the drawings I'd done of Craig and so my portrait of him in the poetry box is, is in his bathrobe What did he say when he saw it on exhibition? Well I didn't yes I, I've, I never I had an exhibition actually at the London College of Fashion um, and I I, I invited him, but I never actually expected him to come. So when I saw him coming from the door, I thought, oh, dear, he's not going to like this. But he was very charming about it. I didn't mind. Yeah. And um, Elizabeth mentioned uh, the Prince of Wales. You've painted him and also his wife. I wondered if you could say something about the sittings with them. Yes. Um, I, I, on the whole, I've kind of never wanted to take commissioned portraits on because um, I think if you're being paid by the person you're painting, it's quite a tricky situation because we all have well, such strong ideas of what we look like and it's not necessarily um, the way we actually look. Um, so I think commissions are, um, are difficult and they're not the way I really wanted to go. But I was um, the Prince of Wales liked my portrait that Elizabeth mentioned of Tony Leake and then Alistair Urquhart. Um, and asked if I would paint him. 
And I, re- I just thought it would be so interesting to <clears throat> do that, but I agreed. And the sittings were actually on the Balmoral Estate in um, Burke Hall, which used to be the Queen Mother's house. And ideally, I would have really loved um, to use my normal methodology, but it, it, it wasn't, wouldn't be possible to get an oral history. Um, <laughs> nobody would agree to that. So I asked if I could watch him while he was working. Um, so it was in his office, and I sat on the floor, more or less underneath his desk, because I wanted to get under his head, really, So I, um, while he, he worked. And um, it was a very um, formal sort of environment to be working in, and there was a huge vase of flowers on his desk, which had just been really picked. They looked as if they had been picked that morning um, from the lovely gardens there. And he was working. He was on holiday, but he was ringing people up, dictating letters, uh, working really hard. Um, And I had a 45-minute sitting um, scheduled. But actually, I think it was because it was very easy for him. He wasn't actually having to sit. So we went on for several hours. Um, and in the end, in the portrait, I included the flowers as well, um, which I worked out really in a lovely sort of way because the Duchess of Cornwall um, is very responsible for the flower arrangement there. So it almost felt like a, a double portrait. It was strange, really. I mean, I, I, um, it went on for so long, and I did worry whether I was, you know, I was going to get stuck and not be able to stand up after sitting on the floor for three hours. But I knew somebody would come and carry me out if that was the Some case. Some ballet. Some ballet, yes. yes. Um, but uh, I got very involved in painting, and he was working and occasionally making a few comments. Um, but I sort of forgot where I was, and, um, and I'd suddenly look up and think, oh... My God, you know, there's a future king of England sitting in front of me. <laughs> or even of Britain. Britain, uh, w- yes. What about the Duchess of Cornwall? Um, well, that was the following year. And he liked the portrait and asked if I would paint the Duchess of Cornwall. Um, and so I went back to um, Barrymoral. And she has a, an office which is very similar to his at the end of the corridor. Um, and I uh, painted her while she was... Um, reading some stories. I can't remember what the competition is, but we have an annual competition um, for children to um, write stories, which she's the patron of a charity. Um, And that was um, a very similar situation. But uh, she was a little bit more engaged with me and asking me questions about what I do and and my life. But again, it was a very fascinating um, experience. And I'm just going to hand the microphone back to Jessica because Jessica has a very interesting question that um, she puts to you about something that's not in your work. Did you mean my question about light? Well, I first had the opportunity to walk through the exhibition with Elizabeth and subsequently read the book. And so I saw more of Eileen's work than was even in the exhibition. And one of the things that struck me about both her portraits, but especially her paintings of gardens and landscape, is the way that she infuses the images with light, the the way that light occupies space in the paintings, despite the fact that there really aren't very many skies, even in paintings where... um, what she's painted is outdoors. And what occurred to me is that it almost gives 
light, um, a sense of a character in the paintings. And so earlier today, I had the opportunity to ask Eileen about what she thought about that response, and she had some interesting things to say. Well, it's really a good question. It made me think quite hard um, about it. I've never had put a sky in my painting, and I think it's partly to do with the composition and uh, the composition I used very early on when I painted Tutu and Common, which is a flat um, space surrounded by trees in, in, in London where I was brought up. Um, but I think that it's something to do with the refracted and reflected light, um, which is I think is more powerful if the light source isn't there. Um, but I don't think that's entirely satisfactory about it. I mean, I, feel, I hope and feel that the sky exists in my painting, even if it's not depicted. But as a child, um, the common was a bit of a place of escape for me from home. And I don't think I looked up to the sky very much when I was a child. And so, you know, maybe that's part of it as well. And somebody um, looking at your work, particularly in the book, might think that you're the sort of person that goes into the countryside, sees something beautiful, comes to a halt in the car, leaps out and paints. And you're very much not that kind of landscape painter. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, I'm not interested in, in kind of documentary topographical painting. I, I, I paint places that mean something to me. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, it can be a new place, but I I think I have to have quite a strong emotional response for one reason or another to the place. And um, the work I did for the Garden Museum illustrates this very clearly because I'd invited a lot of people to nominate London green spaces and then I went and drew them. After I'd initially seen all the spaces, I had to work out which ones mattered to me and um, where my language was in the selection. And once I did that, then I returned many, many times to get to know the place very well. So it's important for me to rather like watching somebody's face as they speak about their life. It's the same with a place, really. It's important to me to be there and witness different changes in lights in the rain or the snow or the, um, whatever. And, and I'm very interested in the close observation of a place as I am of a face. And um, I think the small changes that seem very infin infinitesimally small actually accumulate and make a huge difference, really. So that's the kind of thing that I care about. And Elizabeth, um, Eileen's paintings of gardens... If you just hear those words, you might tend to think of something very colourful, perhaps rather sentimental. Um, that there's many, many people painting gardens. And I think Eileen's gardens are never like that. What, what do you see as the character of her gardens on the whole? I think they're atmospheric. I, I like Jessica's question about light. It seems to me one of her really wonderful paintings is the paintings of the plane trees, which captures the shadow and the light so brilliantly, where you could just tell someone, oh, she's painting trees. But unless you've seen it, you don't quite understand how that fact that Eileen's been looking at plane tree bark, which is that wonderful modeled um, London tree bark that you see everywhere, for years and has understood it intuitively in a way and then is able to 
expand upon it in a larger scale, I think is incredible. Um, but I think atmosphere is what occurs to me and the fact that she paints snow so that you can actually feel that you're hearing what it sounds like in a in in snow that is the absence of sound so i think we started by talking about all the 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 sound that actually comes through to me in the paintings the sound of the sprinkler um at the chelsea physic garden i think is present um throughout the exhibition we we started with a smaller version of the chelsea physic garden sprinkler in the bay first bay um, and then in the last bay, we have one of her large um, final pictures of the same subject. Next to it, a study of that sprinkler and a sketchbook in that bay of the sprinkler. And it's the sound of that sprinkler, to my mind, echoes throughout this exhibition for me. And we tried to follow that in the book somehow. And I think one thing the book does... Uh is show the coherence of the work. So in the exhibition, there's a 1980 painting of two cyclists that we were looking at this morning together um, that has so many characteristics of things that are in the 2018, 2019 paintings and in the portraits. But it's interesting, I think, either of you, um, that the gardens tend to be uninhabited and the portraits occasionally are in gardens, but on the whole, they're in no identifiable place. So there's a big separation in them, and yet the connection through the brush strokes, through the kind of observations Eileen's been making. So how do you see that that those that separation? Um, I have been painting um, the same thing all my life, um, which I think is quite an unusual thing to do, but I'm now after looking at it so hard over the last couple of years, see it as strength, actually, whereas before I've wondered why I hadn't done other things. Um, when I painted commons and parks in the early days, there were traces of people or back views. Um, for me, uh, green spaces uh, are a place of sanctuary, um, but quite lonely spaces. Um, quite empty spaces. And I think my work's got quite a lot to do with memory in, um, in, in relationship to place. So the presence of a person or people isn't important. Um, and the... Well, I'm rather accidentally, I think, I've started painting the very um, uh, people who are recognisable um, and, and Ian Hamilton Finley was the first person that brought together the idea of um, a person and a place, which were both very memorable. But I think that's probably the only um, example of that. Uh, mostly, I feel when I'm looking at places um, during the oral history recordings, it's like looking at the facade of a building, really. So the, the um, face is actually the place as well. And um, one aspect of your work that's covered in the book is your time in Greece. Could you perhaps say a little about that? Um, I went to... Greece was the first place I went to when... Um, well, I was... Yeah, I was went to Ireland a lot as a child. My father was Irish. But um, Greece was the first kind of grown-up holiday I had on my own when I was a student. And I fell in love with it straight away. And um, we used to go there... 
um, every year hitchhiking around Greece, and so I got to know, to know it really well. Um, and it was very, very liberating, actually, coming from post-war London, which in some ways was, you know, with rationing, was rather bleak to go to a Mediterranean country where there was um, the Mediterranean diet and there was, you know, olive oil and wine and um, people, wonderful uh, sort of uh, warm people. And I learnt Greek and eventually got a, um, a British Council scholarship to study in Greece and ended up at the um, British School at Athens. It was... Um, I mean, it, in a way, it relates to Jessica's questions about sky because um, Greece is, you know, very, very strong light, actually, and quite difficult for me artistically to accommodate. And so um, my solution was to work inside, um, looking at, at the lights coming through the slatted um, blinds of tavernas. So I'd be often sitting in a taverna um, looking at the um, striped light that was formed and or looking through windows. So again, I wasn't really confronting the source of light. And Elizabeth, what's been the response to the exhibition and the book? Well, as you'd expect, it's been extremely positive. We tried to make it as beautiful as possible. So I think I'm very proud of it. Um, I think Eileen's found this week, she's had an enormous number of fans who come up to her in the space and said how much they admire her work. So I think people are feeling um, that they want to engage with the exhibition um, very closely, which I think the book reflects very well. It gives people an opportunity to look at the close observation that Eileen mentioned a few minutes ago. So, yes, I'm very pleased with the response. And um, Eileen, in terms of the installation, I think you were quite surprised by the response you got from the installation team. Yes, I was actually. Um, uh, it was it was great. I'm mean, I'm very used to having um, exhibitions in um, commercial galleries, I suppose, where where um, the very much um, hang the exhibition a week or two before it opens, although it's been planned for longer than that. But nevertheless, put the work around the gallery and see what it looks like. Um, so it's been quite a revelation to me to watch, uh, observe how Elizabeth works and how many, many, many months um, the layout was planned. And um, when we arrived, it was being um, put up by the installation team and all the installation team artists. I mean, I think it's characteristic worldwide that that happens. And um, they were making such good comments about my work and making connections and, in fact... Um, Kyle, yes, and he mentioned that um, he noticed that my self-portrait, which is the first painting you see, which is quite a large painting, in the background there's a study for of Ian Hamilton Finlay in the garden, and that was a study for a painting, a portrait of Ian, which is owned by the centre and was in the exhibition. And, I mean, you, you tell the rest of that story. Oh, well, <laughs> I was shocked because I hadn't... <laughs> realized um, that that was the case because, well, it was a surprise to me that I hadn't acknowledged it in the label or in the text. And I realized looking again at the frontispiece of the self-portrait, which is in the book, which is the self-portrait, it actually doesn't have that Ian Hamilton Finley study in the back. So this is also to show how Eileen likes to work 
on paintings that we think are finished. And so at some point, she must have added that um, after we made the photograph um, that appears in the book. But I think it was a wonderful story. And I think the day of the press preview, um, we did acknowledge it and offer up to our um, press reporters, the people that were there for the private view, that we could give them a new photograph that showed the painting. But I think it's interesting, too, because it's to do with ownership as well. I mean, if you're an artist, you're very... You feel that the paintings are yours, and even though they're sold, I think they're like you know foster children. You let they're, they're fostered out, um, but if they go into a museum, you're not allowed to touch them. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not allowed to change anything. Right? <laughs> Could you just say a little bit about how you came to do the self-portrait? It's um, I work in a rather historical studio in London now, um, which had belonged to somebody who taught me when I was a student at the Royal College of Art, um, the painter, Leonard Rossiman. And um, he had a mirror uh, on a hinge in the studio, which he actually used to um, get a long view of his large paintings. Um, And I walked past that mirror sort of every day a couple of times. And so I felt that the portrait came about through... um, by chance, by subterfuge almost. I mean, I started drawing myself each day in the mirror um, and then eventually painted myself in the studio. And I never felt... um, I was very determined when I was a student or shortly after that I wasn't going to um, make a great fuss about having a wonderful studio because friends of mine had... um, uh, rented wonderful studios and then they had to get terrible jobs to pay for the wonderful studios. So I I decided I'd always just, I'd always have a studio, but I'd just be able to work anywhere I was, which I've done. Um, but when I moved into Leonard's studio, which is a purpose-built 1890 studio with a north light, very much as it was originally bought because Leonard didn't make any changes to it, it really made a difference to my work. And so it was rather like, you know, Auden, W.H. Auden describes the studio as a sacred, as being sacred. And it felt like, it felt like that to me, really. So that portrait represents my working practice. It represents my relationship to an older painter who had an influence on me and the idea of a studio. Just one more, because you've been asked this so many times during the course of the exhibition. How do you use wax? Um, <laughs> I've always used glazes in my work. I like the idea of building up glazes, the transparency and the layers. But in recent years, I've discovered the, um, uh, the, the, I've discovered wax. <laughs> and I use a cold wax, um, which is like a paste, which I buy in... in little um, glass jars and um, I work on paper a very um, robust paper and I put a layer of wax on the paper before I start which to some degree does seal it a little bit but then I paint on top of that um, before it's dried properly and then I often put more layers of wax at different stages in the painting and I feel it kind of um, I feel my I often change my work quite dramatically and I paint out um, parts. But I feel that the wax traps um, those layers of paint. So there's an echo of previous states um, in the final painting. 
what does the wax give that's not there if you don't use the wax? It gives a, um, a viscosity and a translucency and it's got something to do with light. It's got something to do with the reflected light. Um, and it, it's a different sort of... Um, it's, very, it's a very different sort of surface. It has been a rare privilege to have you all join me and a real treat to be able to listen to you all speak with one another. Thank you again so much. The book, Eileen Hogan, Personal Geographies, which has numerous insightful essays, is beautifully illustrated with Eileen's paintings and images from her sketchbooks and her book projects, also photographs, will of course remain available after the exhibition closes, and it can be purchased at bookstores and online. Thank you for checking out this podcast. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with the whole podcast series, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.